0: Alright. So we've got a big big crowd here today and some new people. Who maybe do you know the story of Esther? Well? Yeah? Good? Good. Well okay, we'll uh, we'll summarize a little bit forever because we're getting nearish the end now. We're gonna finish chapter eight, which leaves chapter nine. And part of chapter 10. Chapter 9's quite long, so I reckon that'll be at least two weeks. And then chapter 10, and then like a conclusion-y thing. So we've probably got like three or four weeks left, I reckon, in the book of Esther. So, where are we at? We've got this young girl called Esther, who becomes? Queen. She is... A Jew, she's Jewish, but she becomes queen of Persia, the Persian Empire. She has a cousin, Mordecai, who's also a Jew, right? Older cousin, he raised her, she's an orphan. Mordecai, there ends up being trouble between Mordecai and? A guy called Haman, who is? An agagite, which means? Uh huh. And within the Persian Empire, who is Haman? He's like
1: the prime minister, he's under the king,
0: kind of power. Yeah, it seems to be pretty much second under the king. Mordecai doesn't treat Haman with the honor and respect that Haman feels that he deserves. Makes Haman really angry, and so Haman decides to. and all the Jews. He passes this law that in 11 months' time, it's basically there's a particular day and it's open season. Persians can kill any Jews they find and take their stuff. Mordecai finds out, probably realizes it's partly like because of him, that this is happening. And so he pleads with Esther to go and plead with the king to save the lives of the Jewish people. Esther is scared because you can't just show up, even as queen, you can't just show up and start talking to the king. But eventually, she's persuaded that, like, she really has nothing to lose, that she needs to trust God and just do. The right thing, and so she invites Xerxes and Haman to a banquet, banquet party, dinner. First time they have their party, they have the dinner. And Xerxes is like, "Why are we here?" And she says, "Come back tomorrow. I'll tell you tomorrow." That night, on his way home from the banquet, Haman sees. Mordecai, and Mordecai doesn't bow to him, doesn't even look scared of him. And this infuriates Haman. And so he goes home, gathers his friends, his wife, and says to them, my life is so good, but I can't enjoy any of it as long as there's that Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. And so they tell him, in the morning, go to the king, ask him to execute Mordecai. And in the meantime, set up a big gallows, an impaling pole, probably. And then in the morning, you can can get him impaled on this impaling throne. But anyway, and then that night, what happens? The king can't sleep. Coincidence. Can't sleep. And so he asks his servants to read him a book. A really boring one. The Chronicles of Persia. Just history book. And they happen to read this part of the book that tells them what? That there was this guy called Mordecai, this Jew, who saved the king's life. And he's like, cool, what did I do to reward him? And he's told he didn't do anything to reward him. And right at that moment, Haman arrives to ask the king to execute Mordecai. And the king says to him, before he can ask, what should I do for somebody that I want to honor? And Haman thinks, he must be talking about me. And so he makes up this elaborate thing, dress him in your clothes, take him around the city on a horse, your horse, all this nonsense. And then the king's like, great, do that for Mordecai. And so, shame of shames, Haman has to walk Mordecai around the city of Susa on the king's horse, dressed in the king's clothes, saying, this is a man the king wants to honor. And then he runs home, ashamed, back to his family, and they say to him, you're in trouble. The omens are not looking good for you, right? If Mordecai is really Jewish, you're going to fall. And at that point, the servants come to take Haman to the banquet. The second banquet with the queen. And that's where Esther reveals to the king what's going on. That this vile Haman, this evil Haman, has plotted to kill us. And anyway, so the king's furious. He orders Haman to be executed on his own gallows. And then that was the end of chapter 7. The problem of Haman is now solved. But there's a bigger problem. Which is... Yeah, there's still this law, right? The enemy has been defeated. Haman is gone, but the law remains. In 11 months' time, the Jewish people are still going to be executed. And so that's what chapter 8 was about. And we can read, we'll just reread the first, whatever it was, 7, seven 8 verses. Uh, does somebody want to read this? Just so you know, the, our, our lessons get recorded and put on YouTube. That's what the microphone's for. It's just so that it doesn't, it's not playing anywhere. It's just so that the verses are clear for people who watch online. Yes, you may begin. Sorry.
1: On that same day, King Ahasuerus came to the estate of Haman, the adversary, adversary of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Now Mordecai had come before the king, For Esther had revealed how he was related to her. The king then removed his signet ring, the very one he had taken back from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther designated Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's estate.
0: Right, so you have, and we'll look at this, and I'll talk about this, we're going to look at this more at the end, but there's this like actual structure and pattern to the book of Esther that's quite cool, and this is part of the reversal. Initially, everything was going Haman's way, now everything's going Mordecai's way. And so everything that was Haman's, all of his estate, his property, as well as his special privileges, the ring, the king's ring, are being transferred to Mordecai. And then, there's four four passages. You can share it around if anybody else wants to read.
1: Then Esther again spoke with the king, falling at his feet. She wept and begged him for mercy, that he might nullify the evil of Haman the Agagite, and the plot that he had attended against the Jews. When the king extended to Esther the gold scepter, she arose and stood before the king.
0: So, still, there's the problem of the law. The Jews are still going to be killed. Anyway, so she goes back to see the king. What does she say? Sam can read. He's a good reader.
2: She said, If the king is so inclined, and if I have to meet with his approval, and if the matter is agreeable to the king, and if I am attractive to him, let an edict, edict be written rescind, rescinding those recorded intentions of Haman, the son of Hammedatha, the Agagite, which he wrote in order to destroy the Jews who are throughout all the king's provinces. For how can I watch the calamity that will befall my people, and how can I watch the destruction of all my
0: relatives. Right. So basically, she says, like she says to the king, just undo that law. Write an edict. Write a law that undoes Haman's law, because I don't want to watch all my family, all my relatives die. And so then the king says,
2: King Ahasuerus replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Look, I have already given Haman's estate to Esther, and. He has been hanged on the gallows because he took hostile action against the Jews. Now write in the king's name whatever, in your opinion, is appropriate concerning the Jews and seal it with the king's signet ring, and any decree that is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring cannot be rescinded. Rescinded.
0: Yeah, so Xerxes basically says to Esther, look, like, I've done everything I can. I've got rid of Haman. I've given you everything that belonged to him, but I can't undo that law. Not even the king can undo a law that's been signed by the king in Persia. And we looked at that last time. You had the same thing in the story of Daniel. And so he basically says, like, you have my ring. You can write whatever law you want, whatever law you think will help. Yeah? And that's what we got up to. So... Verses 9 and 10. Yeah.
1: The king's scribe were quickly summoned. Well, in the third month, that is the month of Saivan, on the 23rd day, they wrote out everything that Mordecai instructed to the Jews and to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces all the way from India to Ethiopia. 127 prov- provinces in all to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, and to the Jews according to their own script and their own language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. He then sent letters by couriers, who rode
0: royal horses
1: that were very swift.
0: Okay, so we'll explore this again, like I said, at the end, but... The book of Esther's actually got this really cool pattern and structure to it. It's symmetrical. Stuff in the beginning is all like balanced with an equal opposite on the other side. It's really cool. And so this passage that we've just read here in Esther 8, this is what it said in Esther 3. So the royal scribes were summoned in the first month, on the 13th day of the month. Everything Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and governors who were in every province, and to the officials of every people, province by province according to its script, and people by people according to the language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by the runners to all the king's provinces, stating that they should destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews from youth to elderly, both women and children. You see, like how similar that is to what we just read. It's not an accident. It's part of the pattern, which we'll see. Like. It's Part of the story that the book of Esther's teaching us, but like I said that's uh, we'll see that at the end. Now, <clears throat> Haman's decree was written when. what's it say? 13th day of the first month. Yeah, okay. 13th day of the first month. And Haman, and Mordecai's? 23rd day of the third month. So how much time has passed? Yeah, just over two months. Which means how long is it until the Holocaust, essentially? bit under nine months. Yeah. And so Mordecai assembles all of the scribes and they write down his instructions. But remember that the Persian Empire was absolutely huge. It went all the way from Ethiopia and Africa to India. And so the question is how do you get this message out to the entire kingdom? Make sure everybody's heard it, everybody knows. <coughs> Well, thankfully, the Persians had an extremely efficient communication system. Did I put, I didn't put dates there. Xenophon, so he's writing about 100 years later. This is a Greek historian, and he writes that we have observed still another device of Cyrus. Remember, Cyrus was the very first Persian king, at least as part of this Persian empire. He's the one who conquered Babylon. He says, to cope with the magnitude of his empire, By means of this institution, he would speedily discover the conditions of affairs, no matter how far distant they might be from him. So basically, you can imagine he's at war over here, and stuff's happening over here, and he needs to make sure that he can find out quickly. So how does he do that? He says he experimented to find out how great a distance a horse could cover in a day when ridden hard, but so as not to break down. And then he erected post stations at such distances and equipped them with horses and men to take care of them. Does that make sense? Yeah. He figured how far a horse could ride as quickly as possible, but not so that it's going to hurt itself. And then he set up stations all through his kingdom that were all like one day's journey away from the last station. Yeah. Yeah. They say, moreover, that sometimes this express does not stop all night, and when that is the case, this express, some say, gets over the ground faster than the cranes. If their story is not literally true, it is at all events undeniable that this is the fastest overland travelling on Earth. It's pretty cool. (laughs) Ah, exactly. Then Herodotus, this is about 50 years later, he, he also writes about this. He says, there is nothing mortal that accomplishes a course more swiftly than do these messages by the Persian skillful contrivance. He's Greek, and he's basically saying there's no like human thing that moves as fast as these messengers. He says, it is said that as many days as there are in the whole journey, so many are the men and horses that stand along the road, each horse and man at the interval of a day's journey. These are stopped neither by snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor darkness from accomplishing their appointed course with all speed. The first rider delivers his charge to the second, the second to the third, and thence it passes on from hand to hand, even as in the Greek torchbearer's race in honor honor of Hephaestus, Hephaestus, something. So anyway, or in other words, as it says in Esther, then he sent the letter by couriers who rode royal horses that were very swift. You can get them all through the entire kingdom. And he had it translated into every language that was spoken in this kingdom. Remember, it's huge. There's lots of different people speaking different languages that are all part of this massive, massive empire. And so he made sure that everybody could understand it and most especially the Jewish people translated it into Hebrew. What did his message say? Well, that's what we're going to read next. Who wants to read this? Pass the baton. Relay. Yeah.
1: (coughs) The king thereby allowed the Jews who were in every city to assemble and to stand up for themselves, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any army of whatever people or province that should become their adversaries, including their women and children, and to confiscate their property. This was to take place on a certain day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, that is, the month of Adar. A copy of the edict was to be presented as law throughout each and every province and made known to all peoples so that the Jews might be prepared on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who were riding the royal horses went forth with the king's edict without delay and the law was presented in Susa and the citadel as well.
0: Okay, so they have this problem. There's this law coming in but under 9 months time that allows the the Persians to kill the Jews and take their property. And you can't undo that law. So that is happening. They won't be able to be prosecuted basically when that comes. And so then the question is well how do you solve that problem? This is how Mordecai solved the problem. How did he solve it? What What did he say? Yeah, so essentially, like, the Jews are given the right to defend themselves on that same day. Yeah? Now just as a point of interest, that, that right to self-defense or the ability to defend themselves is pretty much the main motivation and promise of what is the modern state of Israel. So, some of you who've been here for a while, we've talked about this a little bit, but 70 AD, about 35 years after Jesus was crucified, what happened? Anybody remember? <laughs> quite, quite strongly, yes. The Romans basically got sick of the Jews rebelling against them, and they came and completely destroyed Jerusalem to the ground. Um, Josephus says that like, there, was, there was basically nothing left. If you passed through there, you wouldn't even recognize that there'd been a city there. And the Jews at that point, Israel ceased to exist as a, as a nation. The Jews were scattered, as God said that they would be, throughout the world, like absolutely every, plant, every country on earth. And that's where they had been for most of the last 2,000 years, is living as strangers in other people's land. And pretty much everywhere they've gone, they've been oppressed, persecuted, killed, and been unable to defend themselves. And actually, at some point, when we watch a movie at Youth, I want to watch Fiddler on the Roof. It's a musical. It's really cool. It's kind of old. Hopefully you like it. It's really cool, though. And it, it tells some of the story, like a little bit of what it was like being Jewish in Eastern Europe. I think it might have been Poland where it's set. But basically, just periodically, the locals would decide there would be some excuse made, and they'd just go on a rampage destroy the jewish businesses kill some of the jews take their stuff what fiddler in the roof i think the 1800s yeah so anyway it's terrible and that that lasted most of almost 2000 years and culminated in like world war ii in the holocaust where literally one in three jews in the world were murdered and the rest of the world Pretty much stood by and watched. In fact, there were even times when America, Britain prevented Jews from leaving Germany. They forced them to stay there and were then killed. And so in the aftermath of World War II and of that like just horrific, horrific event, there was the establishment of the Jewish state. 1948. Israel exists as a nation again. And one of the promises of that was, now we have our own country, we have our own army, we can defend ourselves. So never again, right? Because next time, we can defend ourselves. And so far, so good. There's been lots of uh, Esther-style (coughs) behind-the-scenes miracles in the last 75 years, but so far, so good. The Jews are still there, and they've been able to successfully defend themselves. But if you remember... for those who were here, when we looked at that prophetic overview, there is going to come a time again when the Jewish people are helpless. And at that point, they're going to cry out to God. God's going to intervene. And that, that will become the salvation of Israel, which is exciting to look forward to. But so, like here, Jews and Persia, they're allowed to defend themselves now. But it's actually a little bit more than that. A little bit more than self-defense. What specifically does this law allow them to do? Enemies, right? Yeah, it's basically it says you can do to your enemies what they want to do to you. Just kind of eye for an eye. Right? You want to destroy, kill, annihilate us and take our stuff? Well, same same goes for you. We're gonna do the same to you. Or at least we have the right to do the same to you. Is that fair? You're nodding? Yeah, you reckon so? Fair? What do, you, what do you guys reckon? Yeah? Fair. I think it probably is fair. Eye for an eye is fair. But it's still a little bit uncomfortable for me um, to read that. <laughs> yeah. So... In Matthew 5, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Which is fair. But I say to you, don't resist the evildoer. Whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other as well. What is that saying? So somebody hits you on the cheek, eye for an eye would say, well, you can hit them on the cheek. Now, my understanding is this eye for an eye was actually a, the point was to prevent people from taking two eyes. Because our, our like uh, natural instinct is if somebody hits me on the cheek, I hit them on both, you know? Or hit them harder. I don't know if you guys, I, me and my brother. This is a long time ago, but when we'd sit in the back seat of our car on a road trip, one of us would like just just touch the other one, and then they would have to touch you, but just slightly harder, and then like you'd go back slightly harder, and you just keep going until you're like full on fighting in the back. That's pretty much, as far as I can tell, human nature, right? Somebody does something to you, you don't just want to repay, repay them eye for an eye. You want to repay them eye and a little bit more, right? Because they were the wrong ones. They started it, <laughs> you know? Anyway, and the point is, if you allow that to happen, then everybody's blind. It doesn't work so well. And so the point of this was actually to say, no, you are only allowed to take an eye for an eye. Yeah? But Jesus takes that even further than that. He doesn't say you're only allowed to take an eye. He says you're not even allowed to take an eye. You're supposed to turn the cheek. Let him hit you again. (laughs) Yeah. Don't take revenge. But then here, we have this edict that allows the Jews to avenge themselves, to take revenge. On their enemies. It's in the Bible. Is that wrong? To desire vengeance? Just because
1: you can do something, you should. You could be given the law saying you can do that, but that's not saying that you should do that. That's sort of giving them the free will or permission to. You can't hit the back.
0: Should turn, you can hit them back if you want, but you should turn the other cheek. Should you want to hit them back? Should you desire vengeance? Is my question. Is it revenge or defense? Well, this is avenge. That's kind of revenge. That's what I was saying. Like, it's actually a bit more than just defense. Defense would say if somebody comes and attacks you, you can defend yourself. Right? You can... But they're told they can go and like kill their enemies. Do to the enemies what they're doing to them. It is giving them the right to, to an extent, start it themselves. And the way this is written, like I said, very ugly, very uncomfortable. But it's like including their women and children. and to confiscate their property that's not defense that's justice that's that's eye for an eye that's revenge so the first thing I was the the desire for vengeance Is actually seen quite a lot through scripture. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 94, I think it's David, says, O Lord, the God who avenges, O God who avenges, reveal your splendor. Rise up, O judge of the earth, pay back the proud. In the book of Jeremiah, this is kind of funny, I think. Jeremiah says, Lord, you know how I suffer. Take thought of me and care for me. Pay back for me those who have been persecuting me. Don't be so patient that you allow them to kill me. Be mindful of how I have put up with their insults for your sake. He's basically being a little bit uh, cheeky with God, I think. He's like, don't be so patient. You know, you're so, so patient that, that you just allow them to kill me. I'm putting up with their insults for your sake, so pay them back. And then in Psalm 58, David says, The godly will rejoice when they see vengeance carried out. They will bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. Who will? Who's going to rejoice when they see the vengeance carried out and they're going to bathe their feet in the blood? The godly. godly. And observers will say, yes, indeed, the godly are rewarded. Yes, indeed, there is a God who judges in the earth. So again, like I kind of cringe when I read that. Is that really something that the godly should desire i think the answer actually is yes this cry for vengeance is really a cry for justice and the more you're reading a book what's it called Auschwitz. Auschwitz. Yeah. that That's a novel, but it's, I think, based on a true story. The more you... Auschwitz is a concentration camp. That was part of the Holocaust. Yeah. The more you learn of history and of human nature and you discover just how unbelievably cruel people can be to each other. Like the more you will realize that there is a deep, deep need for justice in this world. For those who have caused people to suffer, unbelievably, to suffer themselves. Because if Hitler, after what he did, just died and the same as all the rest of us, and that's that. That's not, an, that's not a world I want to live in, you know? There needs to be justice. Justice if there is a God who judges in the earth, as David says, then there is a need for there to be justice. And if you remember back to our study of Ruth, for those of you who are here, we talked about this concept of a goel. Do you remember what that meant? Redeemer. There's this goel is the redeemer. And so in the Old Testament, in the Jewish, in Jewish culture, in the Jewish community, every family had a goel. They had a redeemer, a person whose responsibility it was if your family members either got into debt and ended up slaves to somebody or lost all of their property. It was your job as the redeemer to redeem them, to buy them back from slavery. To buy back their property. That was one of the jobs of the Goel. What was the other job of the Goel? Something to do with marriage. That was part of part of that redeeming. What else? Somebody like hummed the theme tune. He's also the Ah. Uh... He's the avenger. The Goel was also the avenger. Some places in the Bible, the word Goel is translated redeemer. Other places it's called, it's translated avenger because the other job of that Goel was to avenge the blood of his family members. If somebody murdered one of his family members, it was his job to go and bring about justice. To bring that murderer to to justice. Now, who was the Goel in the book of Ruth? Boaz Boaz was the Goel. Who did he represent? Yeah, it was Jesus. We looked at that story, like the whole story of Ruth is a picture of, of Jesus and his role as our Redeemer. So he redeems us, saves us from sin, saves us from death, all that. Buys us back. But he's also our Avenger. It says in Revelation, When the Lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been violently killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Master, holy and true, before you judge those who live on the earth? And avenge our blood. So these are Christians who've died because they were Christians. They were murdered, and they're calling out to God: When are you going to avenge us? When are you going to bring about justice? Yeah. And the answer is like not long. At least in God's in God's economy, there will be justice. Their lives and their blood will be avenged by who? Jesus, by our avenger, by Jesus. But it's by Jesus, not by us, right? It's God's responsibility to bring about justice and vengeance, not ours. In the book of Romans, we read that, well, yeah, we would have read this, Romans 12, it says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. This is kind of Jesus again, right? You've heard it said, eye for an eye. But I tell you, turn the other cheek. Don't repay evil for evil. Consider what is good before all people, and if possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Do not avenge yourselves, dear friends, but give place to God's wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord. So, Paul tells us, do not avenge yourselves. We must not avenge ourselves. Why? God will. God's vengeance is mine. It's God's. Leave it to Him. Okay. So that's fine, but if if vengeance and justice is fair and good, why shouldn't we seek vengeance? Why are we told to, leave, to not not to not avenge ourselves? Do you think? Why are we told to leave it to God? Any ideas yeah, I think that's where we'll go i think I think there's two reasons. firstly, I think it's because we're all guilty too of something. That's what it said in Romans two therefore. You are without excuse, whoever you are, when you judge someone else. For on whatever grounds you judge another, you condemn yourself, because you who judge practice the same things. Now we know that God's judgment is in accordance with truth against those who practice such things. But do you think, whoever you are, when you judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape God's judgment? Basically, Paul says, like, we're all guilty of... Many of the same things that we judge other people for. And so if we take revenge on other people, there's a good chance that we're going to be found to be... Words starting with H. If you judge somebody for doing something that you yourself do, you're a hypocrite, yeah. And Jesus had some pretty harsh words to say to hypocrites. And so we don't want that. So that's the first thing. We can't judge other people because we're kind of guilty ourselves a lot of the time, and that would make us hypocrites. But the other side of it is, as John said, we don't actually know enough to be able to judge fairly. Here in Romans, it says that God's judgment is in accordance with truth. He knows the truth, and so he's able to judge and avenge fairly. We, on the other hand, are plagued with ignorance. And so there's a good chance we're going to get it wrong. There's this quote from C.S. Lewis that I love. It's long, but I like it and I didn't know what to cut out. So I put it all in there. Plus, I haven't quoted from C.S. Lewis in a long time. So I think that's okay. But this is how how he puts it. He says, Human beings judge one another by their external actions. God judges them by their moral choices. When a neurotic who has a pathological horror of cats, this is one of the things that's great about C.S. Lewis, is like his illustrations are so good. So you've got this like guy who's paranoid, he's terrified of cats. But he forces himself to pick up a cat for some good reason. It's quite possible that in God's eyes, he has shown more courage than a healthy man may have shown in winning the Victorian cross. So you have the soldier out there at battle who shows himself to be valiant and is rewarded with the Victorian cross, C.S. Lewis reckons, in God's eyes, this guy who picked up the cat that he was terrified of may have shown more courage. When a man who has been perverted from his youth and taught that cruelty is the right thing does some little tiny kindness or refrains from some cruelty he might have committed and thereby perhaps risks being sneered at by his companions, he may, in God's eyes, be doing more than you and I would do If we gave up life itself for a friend. He says it is as well put this other way, it is as well to put this the other way around. Some of us who seem quite nice people may in fact have made so little use of our good genes and our good upbringing that we are really worse than those that we regard as fiends, as like criminals. Can we be quite certain how we should have behaved if we had been saddled with the psychology, the psychological outfit, and then with the bad upbringing, and then with the power, say, of Himmler? And so Himmler was one of the guys in Nazi Germany who essentially orchestrated the Holocaust. And he says... Well, we'll look at it in a sec. But basically, like... There's all sorts of things that went into making Himmler who he was. And can we really be sure how we would have responded if we'd, gone through, if we'd had all the same experiences, you know? And that is why Christians are told not to judge. We see only the results which a man's choices make of his raw material. But God does not judge him on the raw material at all, but on what he has done with it. One man may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands, and another so placed that however angry he gets, he will only be laughed at but the little mark on the soul may be much the same in both. Does that make sense? Yeah. We look at this guy whose anger caused perhaps thousands of people to die. And we look at this guy who got really angry and people laughed at him. And we're like, he's way worse than he is. But really the what was going on inside of them it must might have been much the same in both from god's perspective it might be much the same this guy just happened to be in a situation where when he was angry like that it had that result you know but god doesn't really care on the outcome he cares on what was going on inside the person's heart is essentially what lewis is saying he says there is either a warning or an encouragement here for every one of us if you were a nice person who's a nice person (laughs) If virtue comes easily to you, who finds it easy to be good? Much is expected from those to whom much is given. If you mistake for your own merits what are really God's gift to you through nature, and if you are contented with simply being nice, you are still a rebel. And all those gifts will only make your fall more terrible, your corruption more complicated, your bad example more disastrous. The devil was once an archangel. His natural gifts were as far above yours as yours are above a chimpanzee. So, like, you guys, for the most part, have grown up in houses with parents that love you, right? Hopefully, who've been a good example to you. That puts you so far ahead of a lot of other people who don't have that, you know? And it might, might make you look like you're a better person, but the reality is you've just had better luck in life. You know, you've had a better example around you. What are you doing with what God has given you? Is essentially what He's saying. And if if you do nothing with it, or even worse, you go backwards, it's bad, right? But on the other hand, He says if you are a poor creature. Poisoned by a wretched upbringing in some house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels. Saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion. Nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that makes you snap at your best friends. Do not despair. He knows all about it. You are one of the poor whom he blessed. He knows what a wretched machine you are trying to drive. Keep on. Do what you can. One day, perhaps in another world, but perhaps far sooner than that, he will fling it on the scrap heap and give you a new one. And then you may astonish us all, not least, not least yourself, for you have learned your driving in a hard school. Some of the first will be last. The reality is, like, we, we are exceptionally complicated. You know, I don't like olives. Why don't I like olives? Yeah, but I like other salty things. I agree with you, but why do I think that? Because not everybody agrees, right? Somebody, some people think olives are nice. I have no idea. Is this biology? Is it some part of like my genetic makeup that means I just can't like olives? Is it some bad experience I had when I was a child? I don't remember one. Is this just part of my inner spirit? The person God created me to be was one who does not like olives? No idea. Never mind, like, my personality, my emotions, the way that I think. No idea how that all comes together to make me who I am. And so, like, you know, I I have these conversations, some of you will know, like, my best friend's a lawyer, a defense lawyer, and there'll be some people who did some terrible thing, and I'll be like, they should go to jail. And you had that conversation with him yesterday. Like, what do you think the penalty for this person should be? And he say, it's horrible. He should go to jail. And then he'll be like, but you know nothing about them. You have no idea what they've gone through in their life. You know, the abuse that they've experienced, the people that they've been surrounded by all their life. How do you, why, what makes you think you would be any better than them if you'd been in their situation? And that's essentially what Lewis is saying here. Like, All we see is what somebody does. We can't see all the stuff underneath that brought them to that place. Only God knows all of that. And so that's why only God is able to judge and avenge fairly. Because He can take all of that into account and judge based on what you've done with what you had, not based on, you know? Yeah. So... Okay, we mustn't judge, because we can't judge fairly. What should we do? (laughs) I love... I actually added a whole bunch of stuff in here, because I thought we were going to run out of... uh, because we were going to have not enough to talk about, but I'm going to have to skip it, because it looks like we've already almost run out of time. But yes, we are commanded to be merciful, show mercy, just as our Father is merciful, not to judge, so that we don't get judged, not to condemn, so that you won't be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. And then, yeah. We're basically supposed to show mercy to people and to leave the questions, because we've received mercy ourselves, so again, treat people the way that God's treated us. And leave any questions of vengeance and justice to God because there is a God who judges in the earth and His judgment is in accordance with the truth. We'll skip a little bit. To the end. I had something in there that like, okay, well, that's, that's fine for us. We mustn't judge. But what about our like government and our society and country? Like, should we not have courts and police and justice systems? Cause they're not supposed to judge, right? It's quite a big part of court judging. Sorry. <laughs> Basically, the answer is no. Governments, the Bible says, God has appointed governments to protect life and punish evil. Like, that is their responsibility. As individuals, the way that we treat other people, we're not supposed to judge. We're supposed to show mercy. We're supposed to love. But there is still a need at a societal level for there to be justice. because And, and you've got that in Romans... 13, Paul says, do good and you will receive its the government's commendation, because it is God's servant for your well-being. But be afraid if you do wrong, because government does not bear the sword for nothing. It is God's servant to administer punishment on the person who does wrong. And so that's still fine. And and uh, yeah, thank goodness for that, because societies that don't have a functioning and fair justice system are pretty horrendous places to B. So, you can thank God that you live in a country where you are innocent until proven guilty, but that there are consequences if you are. here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, a bit of a detour. Let's finish. Who wants to read verses 15 to 17? Lisa.
1: Now Mordecai went out from the king's presence in blue and white royal attire, with a large golden crown and a purple linen mantle. The city of Susa shouted with joy. For the Jews there was radiant happiness and joyous honor. Throughout every province and throughout every city where the king's edict and his law arrived, the Jews experienced happiness and joy, banquets and holidays. Many of the resident peoples pretended to be Jews because the fear of the Jews had overcome them.
0: Yeah, so, Mordecai is not wearing the king's clothes the way that Haman wanted to, but he is apparently in the king's colors. Back in chapter one, when the king had his big banquet, it said that the furnishings included white linen and blue curtains hung by cords of the finest linen and purple wool on silver rings. And that's basically the colors that Mordecai is dressed in blue and white with a golden crown and a purple mantle. And so, and he's even given a a golden crown. And how do the city of Susa respond when they see this man, Haman, uh, Mordecai? Haman, as we said, is now dead. Mordecai has taken his place. And this edict has gone out. How does the city respond? The joyous. Yeah, the joyous. The city of Susa shouted for joy, and there was. Well, and in particular, obviously, the Jews were glad, radiant happiness and joyous honor. I think probably one of the more remarkable phrases in the book of Esther is, uh, yeah, okay, the city's happy. That's what Proverbs says. When the righteous do well, the city rejoice. When the wicked perish, there is joy. That's essentially what's happening here. And then one of the more remarkable phrases in the book of Esther is that many of the resident peoples pretended to be Jews. If you remember back in chapter 2, who was pretending to be who? Esther's taken into the palace and Mordecai tells her, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. In other words, pretend to be Persian, Gentile, yeah. That's fairly common. Like, all over the world through most of the last two thousand years, Jews have many Jews have had to hide their identity, to pretend to be Russian, German, whatever, to avoid persecution. And so that's pretty common. But I'm not sure how often Gentiles have pretended to be Jewish beyond this. Um But I don't think it's the last time that Gentiles will wish that they're Jewish and rejoice over Israel. I think that this is actually somewhat prophetic, actually, in the book of Esther. If, again, back last year when we looked at that prophetic overview, there's coming a time, the millennial kingdom, when God establishes His kingdom on earth. And there it says in Isaiah, "'Arise and shine, for your light arrives.' The splendor of the Lord shines on you. Who do you think you is? Who do you think this is talking to? For look, darkness covers the earth and deep darkness covers the nations, but the Lord shines on you. His splendor appears over you. Nations come to your light, kings to your bright light. Foreigners will rebuild your walls. Who is he talking to? Yeah, Jewish people, Jerusalem. Their kings will serve you. Even though I struck you down in my anger, I will restore my favor and have compassion on you. Your gates will remain open at all times. They will not be shut during the day or at night so that the wealth of nations may be delivered with their kings leading the way. The children of your oppressors will come bowing to you all who treated you with disrespect will bow down at your feet they will call you the city of the lord zion of the holy one of israel you were once abandoned and despised with no one passing through but i will make you a permanent source of pride and joy to coming generations and so again i think that this this uh, just this little hint in esther at the end here is kind of a prophetic a shadow a prophetic pattern of a time still future when god restores the Fortunes of his people, restores the fortunes of Jerusalem and rescues them from their enemies. Cool. That's chapter eight. Next week, start chapter nine. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you so much for your word, Lord. I thank you for every every one of us are able to be here this morning, Lord. I thank you so much for your mercy to us, Lord, that uh, we're not treated really with justice, not, not individually, Lord, we're not treated the way that we deserve, that you've shown mercy to us, an unbelievable grace, and I ask that you would help us to show that same mercy to other people, to leave questions of revenge and justice and vengeance to you, knowing that you are You are perfectly just, Lord, and that justice will in the end be done. Um, Yeah, but that uh, moment by moment and day by day, you would help us desire mercy in the lives of the people around us just as we've been so privileged to receive ourselves. Please go with uh, all these guys this week, particularly as they go back to school. Be with them lord help it to be fun see their friends again uh yeah and bring them all again back here safely next week in jesus name we pray amen